0: If you have a Bible, I want you to join me in the Gospel of Matthew and the 27th chapter. Matthew chapter 27 be our primary uh, passage this morning. Three years ago in uh, February 2010, a couple of guys and I from this church joined a couple of other guys from a couple other churches and we went to uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Frank was there and Chad was there and Victor was there and I was there and... Uh, not long after the earthquake had uh, occurred, and so we went down there to, to do some help, to do some food distribution, to do some gospel proclamation, and uh, while we were there, we went to all sorts of different villages, and the children were just as precious as they could be. They were not bashful at all. In fact, they'd all come running up to us, and we'd play games. Victor would play soccer with them, and I've never been good at soccer, so, uh, so I would just sort of watch, and we'd play uh, dodgeball and so on and so forth, and and we, we hadn't been there many days when I noticed all the children would come up to me and they would say uh, a, a little phrase. And I can't remember it exactly. You know, they, they speak um, uh, so, sort of a French type language. I've never been good with foreign languages anyway. And, uh, so, but, but I could pick up on enough that they were sort of saying uh, something that sounded like po- poco. It would run up to me, poco. And I just sort of assumed that must mean preacher or pastor, you know, he's the poco. Uh, and I could notice when my translator was with me and these children would run up, he would kind of giggle a little bit. And uh, I, I began to realize that if they were calling me preacher, he probably wouldn't be giggling. I mean, what's funny about that? That's, you know, that's, I, I am the pastor. And so we had this long bus ride, and I started to ask him. His name's Garrison, this awesome guy, this fine young man. And I said, well, what, what are they saying when they come up to me? I can't quite catch it. And he said, oh, Pastor Brandon, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> so... So, as you might know, as soon as he said, you don't have to worry about that, that's all I worried about, <laughs> right? And I said, maybe it's just this one village. So we went to the next village the next day. All the children come up, poco, poco, poco. And after two or three days of this incessant chanting on their part, we got back to the, uh, to the orphanage, and we were eating, sitting dinner, and I said, seriously, uh, Garrison, what are they saying? I mean, every time we go out, that's, they're, they're running up to me, and they're saying this. He said, no, you really don't want to know, Pastor Brandon. <laughs> I said, Garrison, I feel like I've come to the point in my life where I need to know. I need to know what they're saying. He said, uh, okay. He said, I don't know how you would say it in English, but it's fatso. 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 I said, no, you must not be saying it right in English. What, uh, uh, what, what is it that they're saying? He says, uh, uh, big stomach. I said, okay. All right, you were right, Victor. I did, or uh, you were right, Garrison. I didn't want to know. They didn't say it to Victor. They didn't say it to Chad. And then Frank was with us. So uh, now I'm just teasing. Um, so, uh, so, so when we came home, I'll just tell you I was a little motivated. The uh, dusted off the old YMCA membership card and, and, and went there. And have you ever gone to the gym and tried to use a machine? And when you actually got on the machine, you realized you did not know how to use it. Like you actually found out that you didn't even enter it right. You were supposed to back in and you went frontwards. And, uh, and then most people don't do this, but, but they have helpful pictures, you know, on each machine. And they list the muscles that you're supposed to use. Or the, and most of the time it's muscles I don't even know what they are, you know. You know, beyond bicep and tricep, you know, you see the picture and they highlight in red. I kept looking for the machine that highlighted the entire body in red, you know. Just where's, where's the machine that works everything out? And then when you're on the machine and you don't quite know what you're doing, it always seems like there begins to form a line at that machine. And then you've got to kind of act like uh, you know what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing. And uh, you, you say, well, no, you know, you, you kind of even talk out loud. Most people don't use it for this, but I read in a magazine that you can do this. <laughs> you know, and then you end up, you're actually on the, you know, the paint scaffolding. They're just painting the walls and you're pulling on a bar and they ask you to come out from that. And then you're sitting here, sitting here on this machine. And, and uh, it just seems like every eye in the place is on you all of a sudden. It's like there's a dozen machines here, but everybody's wanting the machine that I don't know how to use. And you kind of have some pride. You don't want to make it obvious. Be, I mean, the smart thing would be to do, can somebody show me how to, how to use this machine? That'd be the smart thing to do, but then you would feel like, you know, well, that's kind of foolish. and It's kind of embarrassing. And then it even seems like the, you know, the televisions that are in the gym, CNN's got a live report from the gym in Rocky Mount of the guy who doesn't know what he's doing. Let's go, we've got a report from our, from our correspondent. Go straight. And it just seems like every eye there is on you. And it's like you know that you need to change so that the next time you go on a mission trip, all the children don't come up to you and say, poco, 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 poco. But you don't quite know what you're doing. You ever felt like that? You, you, and, and, and we're not talking about the gym. It's sort of a metaphor. Have you ever felt like that in life? It's not necessarily true, but you feel like everybody else knows what they're doing. You know what can be like that most of all? Church. Show up here and... Seems like everybody else knows what they're doing. They know when to stand or when to sit and when to get out the Bible and where to turn. And but you would say, I, I don't quite really know what's going on here. And um, the helpful thing for me at the gym would be if when everybody's gone, somebody would just show me. Oh, here's how it works. Where, where do you start? Maybe you feel like that in your life. It's not not uh, your physical appetite and so on your diet, but you just know something's just not right. And it's not physical. It's it's spiritual, right? And, and you know it's not working, and you know it needs to change, but you just don't quite know where to begin. And what I want to, in humility, suggest to you this morning is the place to begin is actually at the cross. And that's why, as a church family, we've been studying these seven statements from the cross. We've looked at one last Sunday morning. We actually looked at two statements, looked at one on Wednesday night, and we're going to look at another one this morning. When Jesus is being crucified, he, he says seven things. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, they record them. Not, not any of the gospel writers record all seven, but over the, over the studying of all four gospels, you can pick out, and here's the kind of the order that they go in. Okay, So, so I'm just going to tell you the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. You just listen to them, and then this morning we're going to pick out one in particular that's sort of our point of emphasis. The first thing that Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross, we talked about this last week, this is after he's been betrayed, after he's been scourged. Literally, while they're nailing him to the cross, the, the, the cross at first would be laid on the ground, they'd put him, and by this time, he's been scourged. Uh, the scourging was so physically intense that, that a lot of people actually died just from the scourging, and so his, his torn body is being laid on the cross, and literally, uh, they're going to nail him to the cross, and then they're going to put the post in the, in the hole in the ground so that when they're going to raise him up, and literally, while they're nailing him to the cross, the first statement he makes is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We talked about this last week. The, 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 the Greek translation is literally... He's, he's saying it over and over and over again. Father, forgive. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we said last week, in order for his own prayer to be answered, what actually has to be true is that he has to continue to be crucified. Because God doesn't forgive us because he's just nice and forgiving. God forgives us because the penalty for our sin is actually being paid by Jesus. God is both merciful and just. That's the clearest statement in all of Scripture. It comes from Exodus 34, when the Lord says, Here's how I really am. And the Lord Himself is speaking, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, merciful and loving kind, or full of loving-kindness. Comma, but I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's Exodus 34. Verses 5 and 6, the clearest time in the Scripture when God says, this is what I'm like, this is what my character is. So you hear those things. He's merciful, he's loving, yes! Absolutely true. But did you hear the other part? I will by no means clear the guilty. Which leaves us with a pretty uh, interesting riddle. And the riddle is, how can those both be true? How can he be merciful and loving-kind, I keep saying loving-kind, full of loving-kindness and compassionate, and yet at the same time not clear the guilty, if as the Bible also says, we're all guilty. None of us gets to stand up this morning and say, I've never sinned. I'm not, I'm not guilty of anything. So, so how can they both be true? How can it be just? It seems like, doesn't it seem this way? He'd have to compromise one or the other. And there's only one solution to the riddle, and that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the guilt is being paid for by him on our behalf. That's why the only appropriate response, if we're fully understanding this teaching, is amazing love, how can it be? that you, my king, would die for me. Second statement that Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross is there's a thief beside of him. At one point, the thief was involved in mocking him, but the thief comes to a point, probably having heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, that he says, he understands, this is an innocent man. I'm being, I'm being rightly condemned for my crime. This is an innocent man. And Jesus says, the second statement from the cross, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And the only hope we have of being with Christ in paradise the second statement is the in light of the first that he is willing to forgive us. The third statement we looked at Wednesday night, even as he's being crucified, he's putting others first. He looks down at Mary and says, "Behold your son." The apostle John is nearby, and Jesus knows that it's the duty, and responsibility of the firstborn son in that in that culture, and to, to take care of the uh, of the mom, and he's arranging. We looked at that on a Wednesday night for her to be well cared for. Interesting to note that the apostle who lived the longest on the earth was the one that Jesus appointed to take care of his, of his mom. That brings us to the fourth statement. If you're following along with me, there are seven statements. So this fourth statement we're going to emphasize this morning, it's the middle statement. So it's right, right in the middle of all the things that Jesus says is going to be this statement. So it's sort of the hinge. Uh, so so he, he, he'll say, we'll read it in a, moment, in a moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Statement number four. Number five is, I'm thirsty. Number six is, it is finished. And number seven is, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there is a statement of forgiveness, a statement of assurance, a statement of compassion, a statement of agony, a statement of suffering, a statement of victory, and a statement of submission. So we're getting close if we put all these things together. Forgiveness, compassion, agony, suffering, victory. That's the, that's the cross. And so when we say, where do I start? That's where we start, is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, and I also want to suggest to you that in order to get any of the statements, we have to get them all, because they work all together. It's the whole picture of redemption. What that means for us is our victory is on the basis of His great suffering. So let's look at Matthew chapter. 27. We'll actually start in verse number 27, and we'll read a little bit just so we kind of get the uh, atmosphere of what's going on when Jesus makes this statement. So Matthew 27 and verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So that's what's happened up to this this point. Mocked, spit, spit upon, ridiculed, beaten. And then we get to verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So what does this mean? Well, in that day, they did not have a, you know, a watch or a clock. They measured the time by the rising of the sun. The sun rises, the day begins. For the most part, sun rises about six in the morning. Uh, it says the sixth hour. So what do you do? You take if sun rose at six in the morning, the sixth hour is six hours later. so it 's noon. And, and, it, and, it, and it goes on, it says, there was darkness over all the land. Now, this word from the Greek translated into our English Bibles, darkness, it doesn't suggest sort of uh, like it was shady. It, it suggests it's like midnight. It's midnight at midday. Uh, it, it's supposed to be the, one of the brightest times of the day, but at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. It's like the sun's just been blotted out. And about the ninth hour, that means this has been going on for three hours where it's so dark you can't see in front of you. It's very similar to what happened in the plagues of Egypt when darkness came on the land. We'll talk about exactly what this suggests in a moment. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now think of all that he's been through. The scourging, his, uh, uh, the betrayal. I mean, in order to, uh, to cry out with a loud voice, as he's literally nailed to the cross, he's got to, to get air in his lungs, got to push up on the bottom nail, pull up on the, In order to cry out, it's physically <laughs> exerting in an excruciating painful It's excruciatingly painful. But he's determined to get these words out. So, what is it that he says? He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic. This is the language that he spoke in. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Now, you got to kind of picture the scene. It's so dark, and they just kind of hear his voice, and, and it's hard to make out. It's, all you can sort of see is shadows, and he's saying, Eli, Eli. And so those first two words, he's actually saying, my God, my God, but to their ears, it sounds like he's calling Elijah. Eli, Eli. He's, he's calling Elijah, and one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. So let me just give you two, two quick things about what's going on here and why Jesus was so determined to make this statement. I think the Bible explains it best. So let's go over to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I think it'll be in your interest to see these verses for yourself. So if you're in Matthew, just turn right about five or so books. 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Verse 17, we'll start. Wonderful statement. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then we'll read verse 18, but the first point that I want to make here is that the reason that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is going to be explained in these three verses. So uh, from a theological standpoint, Let's read this to get our explanation. It says, All this, verse 18, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So what's going on when the whole world goes dark for, th- for these three hours? This is what's going on. Now I want you to notice what it says. Uh, this is an important distinction to make. In verse number 18... Uh, excuse me, verse 19, that is, in Christ God was, hang with me, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now hear very carefully what the Bible does not say. The Bible does not say He counted not their trespasses. What does it say? He did not count their trespasses against them. But He does count their trespasses against someone. Now, this is in. Understand the context. He's talking about those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're understanding what the Bible's saying here, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, your trespasses are not going to be counted against you. But they're not just blotted out in the sense of kind of deleted from the hard drive as if they never happened. No, they're placed on, on Christ. We have a phrase, the whole world, the weight of the world on someone's shoulders. Well, that was very literally true in the case of Jesus. It says. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you think of a more devastating word than forsaken? In the context of a relationship, is there any more devastating word than the word forsaken? Forsaken by a father, forsaken by a friend. For, forsaken by a loved one. I mean, is there anything more devastating? I can't think of another word that's more devastating than, than that word. And what I want you to see is the uh, full of grace provision that Jesus says forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Paul comes along in 2 Corinthians and says, why does this happen? For your sake. For your sake, He is forsaken. For your sake, He is forsaken that you might be reconciled to God. And this we see here backing up to Matthew 27. In the clearest sense, Jesus, forsaken by God, taking on the guilt that was not His own. He knew no sin, but He became sin. Never lied, took on all the lies. Was never sexually immoral, took on all the sexual immorality. In fact, the Bible says he, be, he became those things. And so God, in, God the Father pours out his wrath on Jesus. We can seem to make at times sin seem frivolous, not that big a deal. Everybody does these sorts of things. But I want you to notice when the Lamb of God becomes sin, God the Father pours out His wrath on the Son. And that's why He says, why have you you forsaken me? So one thing that we see clearly is He is the Lamb sacrificed, the substitutionary atonement. But there's also a second second thing going on here that I want to uh, share with you about. And it's pretty mind-blowing when we consider its full implications. Is that even in this moment, Jesus is making an appeal of grace to His most uh, stubborn enemies. I want you to look up here and it said it. Verse 41 of chapter 27. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked Him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. It just drips with sarcasm, mockery. These are the religious leaders. I mean, these are the chief priests standing by the cross. I mean, you've got to be a pretty hard-hearted man when a man's being crucified to come to him and make fun of him, ridicule him, mock him. And even as they do this, Jesus makes an appeal of grace to them. You say, well what does that what does that mean? Well everybody get a hymnal out. Don't worry, we're not gonna I'm not gonna lead you in singing. But just get a hymnal. If you got one there. And turn to hymn number three thirty. It feels strange for me to even say these things. Standing here like this. Don't worry, it's just the illustration. Hymn number 330. What's well, hymn number 330, if you're there? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You see, in our hymnal, we've got a, we've got a page number of sorts, and we've got a title. And then I want you to see the title, and then I want you to see uh, the first line in the hymn. You see it? What is the first line? Amazing grace, right? So why do we call this song Amazing grace. Well, it's pretty simple, right? We could say we're going to sing Amazing Grace. So, so it's, it's pretty logical. If we're going to stand and sing a song, the title of the song is what? The first line of the song. Now, don't look at the book. Don't look. Don't look. I'm going to say the first line of the song. You echo back to me the next phrase, okay? Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch like me. But now I'm found. There you go. You can do that. Uh-uh. Uh, Go to uh, Hymn 334. Wonderful hymn, isn't it? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Why do we give it it that title? Look at the first line. What's the first line? Blessed Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. And if I say that, some of you can be able to say, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Uh, Look at 335. Standing on the Promises is the title. What's the first line? There you go. We'll do one more because I think you got the point, right? 338. We're not going to go for the whole hymn book. 338. How firm a foundation. What's the first line? Okay. You got it. You got the point. First line of our song is the title. Now, yes, yeah, you can go on and put your hymns away. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders were the religious leaders and they were accustomed to to leading religious services. To, they, were, they were experts in the Bible. The problem was they knew a lot of facts, but they didn't actually know the God of the Bible. And when I tell you that Jesus, even in this moment, is making an appeal to his strongest adversaries, he musters up the, 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 the effort required to shout out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a direct statement to their hymn book, if you will. They don't have hymn books, they have the Psalms. That was their hymn book. So go with me to uh, what we would call Psalm 22. Go with me to Psalm chapter 22. While you're getting to Psalm 22, I want to say a few things to you about Psalm 22. First of all, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, this psalm had been written a thousand years beforehand. Okay? Let's say that one more time. When Jesus is being crucified, this psalm had been written a thousand years before then. It had been written by David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, when I asked you to turn to Psalm 22, here's how I articulated it. Turn to Psalm 22. Back then, in those days, that's not how they would have said it. All these chapters and verses that are long, for example, John 3.16, when John wrote The Gospel of John, he didn't organize it that way. They did that later on when the printing press press came along and 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 were able to organize things so that we, as we're together and we can stand and I can say, turn here and so forth. So, hanging with me, Jesus doesn't cry out from the cross, Psalm 22, but that's exactly what he says. Look at the first line of Psalm 22, okay? What do you see there? What's he said? My God, my God why have you forsaken me? Now just hang with me. In the same way that I can stand here today and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and you can echo back, that saved a wretch like me. Those chief priests, scribes, and elders, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In their minds, because one of the requirements to be a chief priest, a scribe, and elder is to actually have the book of Psalms, you ready for this, memorized. In their minds... God's put out the lights, darkness covering the land, and their minds have to go to this. You ready to hear what it says? This is going to be pretty unbelievable. You're going to conclude, somebody who wrote this a thousand years ahead of time, it's pretty interesting. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, about that time, you know, the lights are out. All they can do is hear the groaning of a man being crucified. Oh, my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. He cried in the daytime. And now, so to speak, he's crying at night. His darkness covers the land. You think of these chief priests, elders, and scribes sitting here, and you say, how, how long does this have to go on before they say, oh, that's just a coincidence. Say, well, that's just a coincidence. Well, that's just a coincidence. That's probably just a coincidence. Yet you are wholly enthroned in the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. You know what's happened, right? Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. All who see me mock me. He's been before Herod, mocked him. Been before the chief priest, they mocked him. Been before the crowds, mocked him. He saved others, why can't he save himself? They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He calls himself the King of Israel. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. you got to think at that time, when they're getting to this in their mind, somebody pipes up and says, if he's the Son of God, let him come down. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompassed me. Interesting fact is just the way that the Roman soldiers in their attire was. You know the cape and the helmet. In fact, the people of that day said that's what they looked like when they came walking around. They looked like a bunch of, of bulls. As they came marching around and all around the cross, there they are, all around him. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, blood from head to toe. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My, stump, my, my, excuse me, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Got to think of that moment when he gives that statement, I'm thirsty. For dogs encompass me. Well, they're crucifying him right near the Jerusalem garbage dump where a bunch of scavenging dogs were known to be in great number. A company of evildoers encircles me. Now, even if you're the most hard-hearted person on the planet, and want to say, oh, this is just coincidence. You've got to raise your eyebrows at the next statement. They have pierced my hands and feet. And David writes this Psalm 1 before the uh, crucifixion was even used as a means of punishment. First by the Phoenicians. Phoenicians were the uh, sailors. And so when they punished a criminal, they'd nail him to the masts of the sail. And the Romans came along and said, well, that's a pretty gruesome way to do things. We'll adopt that practice. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, what are the Roman soldiers, what, are they, what have they just been doing at the crucifixion? Casting lots over his, his clothing. And you can go line by line by line by line. And one of the things Jesus does when he cries out from the cross is makes a very clear statement. This is not some sort of happenstance or coincidence. The Bible says that he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Go on down to verse 30. Uh, If you have time today to look through this whole thing, it's well worth your time. But verse 30 says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it, and I can't help but but think that when he gives these elders, these wicked, self righteous elders, the opportunity in their mind to go through this psalm, and it concludes that way, he'll proclaim to a generation yet unborn that he has done it. That at that moment, Jesus on the cross must have said, "It is finished." And at that moment, he yields his spirit. Amazing love. How can it be that my king would die for me? Now, these chief priests and scribes and Pharisees were devoted to their traditions and their legalism. But even even in this moment, Jesus is saying, do you get it? Do you understand? You've set your face against me, but I'm dying for you. You. I'm taking on your sin. Even as you mock me, I'm willing to take that sin on, my, on myself. Two things that we see is that from this statement of Jesus in Matthew 27, is one, he's, he's, He is suffering the wrath of God on our behalf. If you want to put it in this term, I don't think this is an inappropriate way to say it. He's enduring hell for us. That's what hell is, is to be separated and forsaken by God completely cut off because he's become sin for us. And then the second thing, even now Jesus is uh, appealing to these men who knew that psalm very well. In closing, I was uh, reading a little something this week. I read that the, uh, uh, the current national debt, you just hang with me for a moment, we're not taking a left hand turn towards fruitless discussion, but the national debt right now is $16,750,806,000, uh, I can't even read this right, uh, so on and so forth. Let's just stick with $16 trillion. a lot. I couldn't even write it down because I was on one of these websites that has the little ticker, you know what I'm saying? Just don't go to that website, it'd drive you insane. But we try to write one, oh, it's changed, it's changed, it's changed, it's changed. It's a huge debt. Question. How do we pay that debt back? Sixteen trillion dollars. You're going to go home today and look in the couch cushions and rumble through your pockets. Sixteen trillion dollars. Now there are two ways that suggested that we could pay this debt back. First way, got to uh, raise more revenue, higher taxes, more money to give to the government so that they can pay the debt back. Just hang with me. I'm not. It's not going to be a political whatever. So, so, so raise more taxes. Number two way, cut spending. So, stop spending. Stop spending. Uh, why, right, right. What we're told over and over: sixteen trillion dollars, either raise taxes, more revenue, or cut spending. I give that as an illustration because, uh, go with me to Colossians. One more passage of scripture, Colossians chapter two. We can't even get our minds around a $16 trillion financial debt. But what I want to suggest to you is uh, the sin debt that we owed the Lord was much, much, much higher. Just, just beyond the scope of understanding it. Spiritual terms uh, way beyond we could. But, but here's the interesting thing. Most uh, people believe, if you can even get them to, to wrestle with the reality of sin... Because another way to approach this whole thing is just pretend like there is no debt, right? Just, just ignore the whole matter. But even if we, we get to the point where, okay, let's deal with the debt, here's the two ways people, for the most part, would suggest that we pay our debt back to God. Number one, what I would call increased spending. Do more stuff. Do more works. Volunteer more. Uh, be more involved in church, even. Do more stuff. Just, just kind of tax your life spiritually, to a greater degree. Give more money, more time, more talents. Devote those things more favorably to, to the Lord. You just, just increase your tax revenue, so to speak. Or the second thing people would suggest to you is you've got to cut some things out. You've got to stop doing some things. You know, that, that sin in your life, quit doing it. Neither one of those things are actually going to pay the debt back. You don't, we, to, 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 I don't know any other way to say it. In a spiritual metaphor, we don't have that kind of money. You, you go to the national debt and you find that scale increasing faster than you can keep up with it. That's sin. There, there, there is not a uh, uh, kind of, okay, let me trade one sin for one good work. That's kind of how most people think. Okay, I did this wrong and I'll go do this right. And it's going to balance it out. That's, uh, here's the problem with that thinking. The Bible says that our good works from the perspective of the Lord, are like filthy rags. Can you imagine going over here to Harris Teeter today or Food Lion or so where are you ever going to buy your groceries? And you go there and, and uh, say, it'll be, you know, $28. You just get a filthy rag out. say here you go. Do I need to swipe this filthy rag? Do we need to sign for the filthy rag? They say, you can't pay with that filthy rag. You can't pay your sin debt back with a, with a filthy rag. So, okay, we've got a big problem. I got some good news. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. You hear what I'm saying? by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the gospel that we believe. Now, here's your debt, much more than $16 trillion. Can you, can you imagine, by the way, the newspapers tomorrow, if the national debt was just paid away? You'd say, everybody would be talking about that. You understand what the scripture is saying here. You had an insurmountable debt and God didn't just wipe it away, he paid for it. It's not that the bill didn't go unpaid, it's that it's that Christ paid it for you if you'll believe, if you'll trusted him that when he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken, you don't have to be. that's what he's saying. say, I'm going to take it." For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's our testimony. We had a huge, insurmountable debt. (laughs) But the Lord Jesus, because of his death on the cross, all our trespasses are forgiven. Now here's the question, in conclusion. Have I said that five times yet? Try to say I'm concluding five times a week. How do we know that the payment was good? How do we know that it was accepted? What's the receipt? On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. But when they went to the tomb, found the stone rolled away from the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The resurrection is the validation that the debt has been paid. If you want to call it your receipt, it's your receipt. And here's what it says. Paid in full. Actually, the next statement that Jesus makes on the cross is, it is finished. And it actually is in Aramaic, it is an accounting term. When he had a prisoner back then, he put him in the cell, and, uh, you know, it's not in any way, shape, or form a fancy place, kind of a hole in the wall, and uh, and and he'd chain him in there, and on the outside of the cell, you'd have the legal demands. Here's why they're in prison. They stole. They, uh... Are in debt. Whatever it is. They put it on the wall and then say you got to serve four years after you've served four years, they'd come along had a big old stamp, the Romans did and they'd stamp it and here's what the stamp said. "Tetalestai." You know what the translation for that is? It is finished. And that's what Jesus is saying when he's hanging on the cross. Your debt can be cancelled. So, here's where we are. One, you can pretend there is no debt. Just kind of Go through life saying, ah, "Yeah, I don't really believe there is a debt. Or you can say, my debt has been paid in full by Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to have a time of invitation and a time of response. The invitation is simply a time to respond to the word as proclaimed. But I want you to know that God has done... To the nth degree, what's necessary for you to see the cross for what it is. I mean, you read through Psalm 22 with me, right? Written a thousand years ahead of time. Uh, This time of year, it's March Madness. Nobody in this room could even get these brackets right. Nobody in the country's gotten a bracket right. Yet here is God saying, clear as he can, a thousand years from now, here's exactly what's going to happen. You can trust his word. You can believe him. And when he says, I'll cancel your debt, because of the atoning substitutionary work of Christ, you can trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would encourage the heart of the believer, the one who's trusted in You, that they would be encouraged afresh and anew, that their salvation in Jesus is secure. Because it's not a result of what we've done. It's not because we've cut our spending or that you taxed us more, so to speak. It's because You've paid our debt. So guard us from error. Guard us from unbiblical thinking. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And Father, guard us from the foolish way of thinking to say there is no dead. Father, for anyone that's here that has not yet believed in Jesus, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit and by the word of God, you would convince them radically of the seriousness of the situation that they are in. And just as serious as the situation is, you are serious about remedying it. We thank you for Jesus, for our sake forsaken. He who knew no sin became sin, that now in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lead our time of invitation. Help us to respond prayerfully, worshipfully, with full adoration and conviction where it's needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.